Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and co-editor of Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern. I'm the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics, and I write on tiki culture and mummies in pop culture. And I'm Nicholas Stoyak, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and the editor of The New Peplum, and the other co-editor of Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, both from McFarland. For today's episode, we will be discussing the short stories of Tim Wagoner's Sorrow Road and Cody Goodfellow's Strangers Die Every Day. Both stories are from Brian M. Sammons's edited collection, Return of the Old Ones, Apocalyptic Lovecraftian Horror, published by Dark Regions Press in 2017. We'll finish the episode by sharing news and other housekeeping items, including what we'll be discussing on next month's podcast. Part 1. Sorrow Road by Tim Wagoner. Okay, so for people, uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with who Tim Wagner is, um, according to his official website, Tim Wagner has published close to 40 novels and three collections of short stories. He writes original dark fantasy and horror, as well as media tie-ins, and his articles on writing have appeared in numerous publications. In 2017, he received the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Long Fiction. He's been a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award and the Scribe Award, and his fiction has received numerous honorable mentions in volumes of Best Horror of the Year. He is also a full-time tenured professor who teaches creative writing and composition at Sinclair College in Dayton, Ohio. So now a little bit about the plot of Sorrow Road. Um, I figured I would go back to an interview um, that was between Sammons and Wagner in which he discusses the synopsis briefly and then how the story came about. So Wagner states that Sorrow Road is about a mother and child trapped on a highway during the old one's return and what, if anything, the mother can do to try and ensure her son's survival. I've always been fascinated by the idea of what the world would be like once Lovecraft's old ones returned to claim the planet, and I believe that humanity's skill at adapting to harsh environments and impossible situations might give us a shot at surviving the old ones as well. I use that idea as the basis for my novella, The Last Mile, and I decided to revisit it again in Sorrow Road." End quote. So this is a short story that Wagner wrote, um, and in it, it basically focuses in on two characters, Chris, who is the mother, and the son, Danny. Um, he is, they've just found out that uh, cancer is reoccurring, um, located on his lower back. And so she is probably on driving on her way home. It seems like a very kind of mundane thing to do, something that we all do um, when her vehicle stops suddenly on the freeway and the story picks up from that. Um, Nick, quick like, what do you think of the story? Is it something that you like? So within all the short stories, The Return of the Old Ones, uh, Wagoner's is probably one of the more standout stories. Um, 
I think the concept of Return of the Old Ones is a great idea. It's a it's an anthology that focuses on you know apocalyptic uh, Lovecraft stories. Uh, it's actually divided into a couple of sections: uh, before the apocalypse, during the apocalypse, and after the apocalypse. Uh, unfortunately, some of the stories they really falter. There's some stories that kind of double up on themselves. They cover the exact same ground. Uh, some of them probably just don't take quite, you know, the liberties that they should be taking with this theme. I mean, so overall, kind of the anthology is kind of, it was alright. But Wagoners, and the other story that we'll be talking about a little bit later, but Wagoners is definitely one of the more standout stories, and I think the reason for that is for Wagoners' visual flair. Um, I recall when um, I'd first read this short story, uh, the scene of, you know, shortly after all the cars stop, and, um, the sky turns to this kind of pus yellow, and it's it's quite a disgusting visual, but it's an accessible visual. Uh, it's not any other type of uh, yellow, it's a pus yellow. Uh, a yellow that we've all seen, and we all kind of associate with grotesquery and sickness, and, you know, we probably maybe even seen it in real life at some point, uh, as the sun is setting and kind of turned into a weird color. And then shortly after that, you know, all these eyes pop in. They look down upon all the characters and quickly scurry away, returning back to the to this yellow sky. And just that one visual just really, I can I think sums up, you know, Wagoner's, uh, you know, uh, you know, descriptive acumen at this type of uh, stuff. And it really made the story stand out. Uh, what about you? What what good story, bad story? Um, I thought it was a great story. Um, like you, Nick, I really picked up on, on the visual uh, the visual presence of this story. Um, I also thought that the, the relationship between the mother and the son, also very interesting. There's, and there's lots of great themes as well. So um, thank you for pointing out about the fact that the, the book is separated into different sections. Um, I didn't realize that... Uh, Tim's story actually falls into the section, where were you when the world ended? So, um, and it's it, stuck it, in traffic, <laughs> stuck in traffic. Um, and if you live in SoCal that, well, a few months ago, that would have been the case, but, um, not, not quite so much now. Um, but anyway, um, gosh, there are a lot of themes in here and I think let's just start right from the, the visual aspect. Um, since we both uh, were definitely impacted by that. Um, Wagner does such a wonderful job. Um, it's just to take such a mundane event in somebody's life, something that we take for granted, and to turn, around, turn it around on its ear. Like, uh, for instance, again, kind of going back to what you said, Nick, with regards to the sky, um, the, the quote is, the sky had been a beautiful blue with the scattering of diffused blurry edge white clouds now streaks of yellow a sicky pus colored yellow threaded through the blue i mean that's so i mean that's so visual and and i mean there's no mistaking um you know that that visual experience um i would agree too the the eyes um that made me think i couldn't remember what the show was but you know all these eyes and he describes that it's human eyes, it's, you know, uh, animal eyes, bug eyes, all these different eyes looking down on, 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 on the humans below. And I just was like, I, I was terrified. I, I thought his visuals, visuals terrified me. 
in a weird sort of way, it's kind of anti-Lovecraft because Lovecraft always holds back on the visuals. Oh, I don't mm-hmm. want to show you the monster. Oh, I don't want to show you what's going on. Uh, Wagoner takes the opposite approach. He lays it out. And we'll probably discuss here in a little bit, like all the critters and all the monsters mm-hmm. and whatnot going on. He doesn't hide it behind anything. He, he just, here's everything that's going on. You try to comprehend this. Not, I'm not going to show you anything. You still try to comprehend it anyway. Yeah, and I think that actually really works here um, because you're right, Nick. Usually, Lovecraft will take you to a point, and then it's left for you to fill it in. And uh, Tim, man, he goes right around the corner and shows you everything. Um, and you're meant to deal with it and, and to see it in all of its gory detail. Um, he, um, yeah, he doesn't hold back. Um, I think one of the things that uh, struck me, um, and I think it's an, an kind of another thing that Tim does, is relying on other, other pop culture references um, that you can interpret yourself and interject. I think that's where, where he really excels at. And, for example, um, when all the automobiles uh, stop on the, the highway, and they uh, while Chris is, like, looking out to the fields and looking at the sky, she starts hearing this sound, um, and it's all the automobiles uh, congregating and being forced together and rising up into this, this huge tower, this beacon. Um, and she talks about how there's a presence. She kind of feels drawn to it, and um, but at the same time, her her human or kind of base instinct is to to not go towards it. And yet, you know, she's seen all these other people that are actually starting to head towards that tower. And I thought that was uh, interesting how she talks about. Uh, the lights, the the sounds, uh, we'll 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 discuss shortly probably, or we can even do it now. That there's this this creature that the the gods kind of speak to, or is represents the gods, and he's a a, con, a conglomeration of all different body parts, and I think that take you know goes to the body horror that. Um, that you speak of, I just thought that was just utterly fascinating. I thought of um, Garth Ennis, the Caliban uh, comic book, and how the the alien takes over the one body and then uh, tries to test the limits of the human body. And it's almost like, you know, here's these aliens, they come down, or, you know, these great gods or old ones, and you know, they, they show who are the masters. There, there's definitely a lot of body horror going on in this, especially at the end. I mean, you start with, you know, Danny's body horror of he's got cancer, you know, back at the bottom of his spine. And, you know, that's just, that's just real life horror right there that you that someone has to deal with eventually. And, you know, that that's horror extends not just from Danny, but to his mom as well. But in a more kind of pop culture sense, you know, this this short story contains, if not overt, but at least you could draw comparisons to, a lot of Japanese films and Japanese anime like uh, Akira, Rojin Z, and uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man. And all those are, you know, uh, 
films or animes that feature sequences of, you know, grotesque body horror of, you know, bodies combining with other bodies or bodies combining with other things. Um, you know, Tetsuo the Iron Man, he's grafting, you know, apparati to himself, uh, Akira and Rojin Z, you know, bits of, like, the ground or buildings or other cars kind of just, you know, fuse in, into bigger uh, beings. And in a weird sort of way, though, uh, the tower, which is a fusion of all these uh, cars and headlights and even fleshy bits, has a nightmare on an Elm Street Part 3 and 4 feel to it, where these, in both those films, there's these sequences in the junkyard where, you know, Freddy Krueger's running around, you know, killing, you know, teenagers and, and uh, John Saxon, but, you know, the, the, the car lights light up, and it's very ominous and everything. One of the... One other kind of weird thing, and I know you've got some pop culture references you want to uh, bring up, but one that just struck me, just the catalyst of being stuck in traffic and setting off like a, a big, uh, well, it's not really an adventure in here per se, but, you know, something big happening is is the Michael Douglas movie Falling Down, um, where, you know, he's just trying to get back home to his uh, family and, you know, now there's a lot of weird readings with that movie going on, especially in this kind of Trumpian era. But, you know, it all starts with, you know, you're stuck in traffic and you want to get out of this and make sense of your world. Uh, not not trying to say that uh, um, the story is a, a perfect simile of falling down, but there's there's some, I would think, some amp uh, comparisons there. And what about you? I mean, I know you have a lot of pop culture references that you see in this uh, story. Yeah, I mean, I think it starts from the the relationship between uh, Chris and Danny. Uh, as I was reading this, I was really reminded of uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road um, and the complexity of the father-son relationship um, there um, and what parent, how far parents will go to protect their children. Um, you know, The Road's slightly different uh, because, um, you know, the father... Uh, gets injured, he actually dies before he can do anything, do anything to help the, the son. Um, sorry if that was a spoiler for people. Um, but um, the complexity of that relationship is, is one that we don't often see in Lovecraft, obviously, but also in some of the Lovecraftian stories that, that we've read. Um, this this um, children are usually absent. They really are, and so I mean, I think that's another thing that that helps to kind of make this an approachable story, particularly if people are, are you know adverse or not familiar with the Lovecraft mythos. This is a wonderful story to to read um, and kind of bring you into um, that whole mythos. Um, one of the other things that struck me was the the eyes and rather um, the absence of the eyes at the end of the void uh, is what struck me there. Um, but I was also just thinking... You, you mean the movie The Void? Yes, the movie The Void. Okay. Yeah, where there's that that vastness, it's dark, it's the two, two humans alone, it's oppressive, it's terrifying and you don't know what's next Danny uh, the name Danny which seems innocuous enough but um, I immediately cued into the young boy from Stephen King's The Shining so I immediately felt a, a kindred you know to the little boy Danny 
um, you know, I'm not his parent, but, you know, visualizing what, who Danny could look like um, beyond the, the scrap information that Tim gives us, um, it's, it's actually very interesting. He leaves the descriptors of the people fairly minimal. So that way, I mean, I think, and it's very effective because we could easily step in to any of those roles. And that's what makes this story approachable. It could be us. It could be us out on that freeway. You know, at one point... It's, she, a, it's a slice-of-life horror story in a weird yeah. sort of way. Yeah, and I mean, even with the... When she gets out of the car and she's going to uh, text or call her, her husband or boyfriend and um, there's no signal. And then she looks down the freeway and she... Wouldn't that be just a natural reaction? We start looking around. Well, does anybody else getting this signal or not? You know, um, um, one of the other things about the tower that I wanted to um, mention was at one point uh, later in the story, as she's walking towards it with, with Danny, she actually mentions how she starts thinking of it as a furnace. And um, immediately I started thinking of concentration camps, the gas chambers, especially when connected with getting marked, um, and I'm sure we'll bring that up here in a, in a few minutes, the dual purpose of learning what to do and as a way to survive is something that came to mind as I particularly read that. And I mean, I think uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, didn't they have, wasn't there a furnace involved yeah. with that? Yeah, they had to throw Freddy's bones in the furnace. Okay. Yeah, Oh, dude, yeah, this, 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 uh, it's the story... It's been a long time since I've seen that film. Th this story definitely draws a lot from Nightmare on Elm Street. And the, the, the other thing, uh, you brought up Shining for Danny's character, but I did want to bring up another kind of childlike character that Danny reminds me of is, uh, Carol Ann from The Poltergeist, where the, um, the masters start talking through Danny is very, very much like Carol Ann when she's, you know, you know, the iconic image of her with her hands on the... TV screen and it's static and she just ominously says that you know they're here you know uh, very very cinematic uh, uh, comparisons uh, between those two the other thing is you, you, you are right I mean both Chris and Danny they're they're superficially described I know earlier we were kind of lauding that you know Wagner does a great descriptive job he does a great descriptive job of everything else but the main characters and that's not necessarily a bad thing I mean we, we know that Danny wears a, a shirt that makes him look like where's Waldo and yep. we, we get more of a what's going on internally with Chris rather than externally with him with her but on the other hand where where Tim Wagner is really, you know, shining is his description of everything going on. We we've been dwelling on the the sky, but you know the pus filled sky, but you know all the monsters and all the other stuff that's going on in this the story. And I also have to remember this story takes place basically in real time. This this whole story elapsed maybe in twenty minutes, thirty minutes tops. But you know within it we we see this this tower form in the middle of the freeway made out of cars and people. We see people run to like off the freeway where there's, there's trees that turn to crystal and you know, their leaves cut up people. There's now vampiric grass on the ground. There's, um, these flying, you know, they're kind of birds, but they're kind of not birds that are pecking at people, which cause them to fall onto the grass, which sucks up their blood anyway. And none of these things have names, 
but they're they're very readily described and they're all unique you know this is there's no recycling of lovecraft stuff here you know there's there's not a, a nary a tentacle to be found <laughs> um you know there there's no there's no shoggoths or great old ones or or elder one whatever you know uh, it's it's all Lovecrafting, but at the same time, it's all uniquely Wagner, and it's all stuff that, you know, I feel it's unique. I feel like we've seen scraps of it in other stories and other films, but they're nicely presented here to create, you know, something, you know, unique to the story that probably fits in with that slice of life uh, kind of feel to it. Of, you know, it's all accessible horror. We all see grass. We all see trees. We all see cars. What if all those things that we see in our mundane life now become stuff out to get us? Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. not the but the monster under the bed that we can't see, or this you know uncaring god in the sky that we won't see. It's it's the it's the grass that gets us. <laughs> How horrible is that? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think uh, that's a great point. Um, the description of the the grass is just is interesting because Chris says she notices how she how she finds the site really beautiful, like out of a child's storybook. But you know, the experience that they're going through is anything but you know that idyllic uh, storybook uh, you know tale, and um, that made me think about one of Lovecraft's other techniques, and that is the credibility of your main character. And, you know, as all these activities are happening around, uh, around Chris and around Danny, I'm, I was struck with, well, why is Chris not reacting the same way that other people are impacted? For instance, you know, she has the wherewithal to not go towards the tower initially. She has the wherewithal to not run all that far into the grass. Like she inherently knows that, oh my gosh, this grass, the trees, they're all being they're all being drained of life and they are becoming weapons for these gods. And it as she's trying to connect the dots, I'm I'm struck with, okay, how credible of a witness is she? Or is it, is she not really credible witness because of all the trauma she's going through? Is this her way of dealing with what she's going through? So how credible is she? I think a, another way to, to spin that question is what makes her unique compared to all the other folks in this story because you know again the events unfold on a freeway you know there's traffic jammed left and right there's hundreds and hundreds of people here you know the masses all flock toward the tower are they all you know behaving you know as a typical mob mentality would do she resists a good chunk of all those stuff so what makes her special from all the other you know unnamed characters in here and the only evidence that we're presented with is she's got a kid in the backseat of her car who is being diagnosed with cancer for a second time. And so she is coping with that. She's coping with a big personal trauma. And, I mean, what do you do? I mean, you're you're in the middle of driving home. You just got this bad news that your kid's going to die. And all of a sudden, you basically have now encountered the end of the world. You know, at that point, I mean, what, what do you do? Do you just kind of say, 
Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> might as well. You know, it's the period to the sentence that I'm, of life I'm living in at this point. Or is it a way to say, you know, it takes trauma to tra- fight trauma? I mean, that's kind of what it boils down to is is her uniqueness is is the trauma that she has to deal with as a mom. Uh, and that's the other thing. We don't know what the other characters in this book are thinking. There's probably mm-hmm. other ones that that she's unique by virtue of that we have her perspective. Almost every other character maybe is thinking in the same lines that she's thinking. Don't necessarily know, but, you know, it kind of goes back to, you know, that saying, you know, we are the heroes of our own story. Mm-hmm. She is the, the hero of this story in a weird sort of way. But, again, it could be another character. Why her? Her uniqueness is because of Danny's body horror slash trauma here. And it really plays out with all this other stuff. Now, uh, in terms of what makes her credible, that does raise a good point. Um, I, 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 most of my readings of horror, I take everything at face value. Uh, that's just, it's, it's, it's not that it's the easiest way to do it. I think it's the more fun way to do it. It's a lot easier, it's a lot more fun to say, there really is a ghost there, rather than go the session nine approach and say, well, maybe there's a ghost there. Um, but it doesn't make it, uh, any wrong. Uh, it is quite possible that, you know, there are horrors going around her that are, you know, there's people dying around her and they're getting fused in this giant, uh, you know, uh, tower and everything, but, you know, she's probably projecting a lot of additional horror into this as well that's heightening it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I I think that it, again, you know, the fact that we're getting to hear from other voices in a Lovecraftian story, I think does um, give a freshness to the story, Um, and I think, you know, it's dealing with the trauma as a mother, you know, it is, it's difficult, and she manages to deal with it. I, I think that she's, in my interpretation, I feel that she is rather credible um, and doing the best that she can with what she has. Um, I think one of the... Well, well, real quick, before you go on, mm-hmm. let me, this has to be a question of that. Is she ultimately successful? Because at the end of the book, here's the big spoiler. You all should have been reading along anyway with this. Uh, her kid dies. You know, she she basically says, "Do what you can to save my kid." To this to this being at you know at the end of the tower that's you know marking people and converting them to to the to the army of the elder gods as they'll run out or whatever. You know, we're kind of left to our own devices. What's going to become of these people? Will they be you know cattle or slaves? Who knows? But you know. The cancer gets ripped out of her son's back. Her kid dies in a very uh, gory fashion and very kind of nihilistic fashion. You know, it, it, I think Wagner describes the the monster standing over her, her kid. You know, he's got like spark plug eyes and you know like airbag boobs or something. You know, basically part car, part human, and it it really like like is a slap in the face when it talks about the you know. Its penis is basically a sparkling wire, and the sparks are just dribbling over your son's dead body. That's really messed up. I'm sorry. That's it's it's messed up. But 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 the end result is, you know, the cancer is now a living thing. It's this purple globular mass that basically Chris kind of adopts, and you know, the the story ends with her kind of walking off. You know, she's marked. She's got the mark on her head, and she's. You know, she has 
a form of her kid now, you know, so she's still a mom. So, you know, you said at the very, very beginning of this podcast, you know, what was Tim Wagoner's kind of point with the story? You know, a mom trying to protect her kid. Was she ultimately successful? And I didn't answer that because I want you to answer it first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's really interesting. And, I mean, ultimately, I mean, we don't know what that mark is going to entail, but obviously Chris, at the end, has the mark. Um, She even says... You know, that she, well, her her friend, let me back up a moment. Her friend, her neighbor, Sherry, is the one that kind of explains that um, when you get the mark, you will know what you need to do. And you basically, you'll have your marching orders. So she was still, uh, as she talked to Chris and starts to lead them up to the tower, she does seem sentient. Like, yes, the, the, the elder gods are in there. Maybe she's, you know, different from some of the others where she's a messenger versus, you know, others that are just kind of like zombies or something like that. But I think ultimately, yes, I think she was successful. Um, I think she succeeded with protecting her son in the best way that she could given the circumstances. Well, I wanted to go back to the beginning because quit laughing, dude. No, no, I I agree. If you're playing fast and loose on air quotes successful here. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally. No, no, totally successful in the best of her abilities. But at the beginning of the story, the doctor tells her he doesn't want to give her false hope. And what's interesting, and this is why the air quotes is also important, is that she walks away with this slick purple mass. It's hard. It's cold. The claws at the end of its thin legs dig into her skin. But, you know, for her, she's thinking, she's looking down, she's carrying it, she's smiling. Things are going to be better. Um, so, in a way, she finds that false, I think she finds a false hope that's you know, something is, is, is there. I think, yes. She's successful in given the circumstances, but what circumstances to be faced with? To be fair, though, I think it's pretty much established that Danny is doomed. If if this apocalypse did not happen, he he was he was dead from cancer. In a weird sort of way, the apocalypse provides Chris a alternative kid. As weird as that is. Mm-hmm. Danny's still dead at the end, but you know he, in a weird sort of way, Chris can probably project, you know, as we kind of do, Danny upon her her new cancerous purple mass baby or whatever. That in time, you know, depending on the trauma she's been through, depending on what that mark does to her, you know, again, if she's some sort of cattle for the New World Order, slave to it, you know, mm-hmm. would she turn into a monster later? We don't know that. But for all purposes, she starts the book with a kid, she ends the book with a kid, and the kid, for all intents and purposes, is still Danny. With that in mind, time to move on to story number two. Part two, Strangers Die Every Day by Cody Goodfellow. Uh, Cody Goodfellow is a SoCal novelist and short story author. His works include the collection The Man Who Escaped the Story and Other Stories, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, and All Monster Action. 
He's contributed to many Lovecraftian works, such as texts for Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu RPG, and he was involved with the HP Lovecraft Film Festival when it had its San Pedro events, uh, where he emceed uh, many of those and did some Cthulhu prayer breakfasts. Um, so, strangers die every day. It is after the apocalypse, and the world is somewhat of a changed place. The sea levels have risen, killing off a fifth of the world's population. Giant sinkholes are opening up across the globe, and technology isn't working so great anymore. In the Middle East, Nefren Ka is waging a war, while in China, the Plateau Alang is very real. In the South Pacific, the city of Ryla has risen from the ocean, and a continent of boats and rafts surround it. And yet, the world hasn't changed as much, as folks still eke on by, working menial jobs. The rich stay in their suburbs, while the lower class deal with cultists, hooded police officers, and mutant chickens. Torben Thrush is one of these lower class folks of society, eking a living by being a, quote, detective, quote, of sorts. Waiting at the local U-Haul, a rich suburbanite hires him to find his missing daughter, since Thrush has... Uh, in the words of Liam Neeson from Taken, a certain set of skills. Mainly, he is the last of the Tuxedo Indian tribe, which grants him some interesting abilities. Thrush is able to track down the missing girl uh, to a cultist, i.e. Uh, some sort of Christian snake handler's church. He infiltrates, gets into some brawls, he gets strung up on a cross and beaten with rocks until he, well, he kinda dies, sorta, he winds up vomiting himself up, taking control of a really fat dude, and rescuing the daughter, whom he returns back to her father, who isn't too happy to see her. Well, it turns out the dad was going to become mayor, and he's just trying to keep a lid on his family affairs. It's all very Chinatown-ish. Anyways, Thrush actually didn't really return the daughter, but instead set some of his little homunculus monsters on the dad instead. But he still gets paid and returns back to his trailer park home, which is next to a giant 10-mile-wide sinkhole. So, that's the plot of Strangers Die Every Day, and for those familiar with the works of Cody Goodfellow, that might be a more tamer piece. <laughs> Because Goodfellow is quite the character. We've actually had the honor to meet him a couple times uh, at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival in uh, San Pedro. And he's definitely uh, unique and brings a very unique voice to Lovecraftian writing. So I guess the first question is, Michelle Ramchips, uh, what are your thoughts on, on Strangers Die Every Day? Well, um, I've had the pleasure... I'm to uh, have read uh, Goodfellow before. Um, I actually read Jake's Wake that he wrote with uh, John Skip. And um, in that, I recalled two themes standing out. One, uh, the dark kind of smart-ass humor that <laughs> Goodfellow has. Um, and also, the critical assess assessment that he tends to have on societal institutions of authority, such as religion. Um, law enforcement and other things. So for that, I I kind of knew what I was getting into when I saw uh, Cody uh, Goodfellow's name associated with this uh, with this story. It is such a vast departure from Tim Wagoner's um, story, but it is interesting that it carries through some of the same themes. We've got. Um, relationships as as kind of a driving or kind of one of the main main themes um 
Thrush has a, um, I'm, I don't know if it's a, a girlfriend or a live-in or what, um, but her name is Ursula, um, and they are, they are partners and kind of getting through life um, in this new post-apocalyptic life. Um, but then there's also the relationship between the father and the daughter, um, which we don't see much of, but um, we, we do gain an understanding through the events. This was kind of, I'm going to be honest, a little bit of a, of a hard story for me, um, just because it felt like it was really kind of all over. Um, but at the same time, uh, definitely interesting um, definitely within the vein of Goodfellow. Um, so there was, there weren't a lot of surprises that way. I think just by sheer virtue of being Cody Goodfellow, it automatically becomes a, a standout story in Return of the Old Ones. Um, it, it feels familiar. It actually, uh, the story to me feels like I'm reading Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, but without the cyberpunk. It's like, almost in a weird sort of way, it's like anacro-capitalism, but instead of taking to one extreme, it's taken to a more religious extreme. But I, I've appreciated Cody Goodfellow. I like, uh, I like the humor without being parody that he brings to his Lovecraftian writing. Like you said, it's, he's smartass. <laughs> this is a smartass piece of work. He, he has a bone to pick with the way the world works, and, uh, and one of the, the best arsenal that a writer can have to, uh, you know, take a stab at, you know, injustice or failure of society is through, you know, parody or humor. And, and it's the funny thing is, is, is Strangers Die Every Day, it's, it's both, it's funny, but it's not funny. It's, um, it's, it's definitely a black comedy. It's a, it's a good thing in this one. It's a black comedy. It's also a detective story, and we'll definitely talk about the detective work in this. And and, and I think it's one of the, the best ways to end on Return of the Old Ones. Uh, I think, Quali, the big question that this story asks uh, is, is, out of all the ways the world can end with all this Lovecraft stuff, you know, we imagine Cthulhu sitting on his throne, and there's, you know, big ol', you know, fire pits everywhere and you know mankind is shackled and everything you know goodfellow paints us more of a i don't want to say mundane but his post-apocalypse isn't much different than a before apocalypse i mean it, that's why i was kind of careful in my plot synopsis it is but it isn't and I, I think those are kind of and we'll talk about themes like that it's like so circling back to i think this is a great story uh, that it's it's definitely a polar opposite of Wagoner's, um, while at Wagoner's is more, well, I mean, the title, Sorrow Road, it's a more somber piece, a more introspective piece. Um, Goodfellow kind of, with his snarky style, lays it out there, and I think it's a great compliment. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah, uh, you know, for example, uh, for uh, Goodfellow and his humor, right off within the first couple of pages, he actually talks, there's a poster up on the wall that says, <laughs> and I'm sorry, but I love it. It says, if you're not the lead dog, the scenery never changes. And the picture of the po on the poster is a close-up of a husky's asshole. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but, you know, it, it is, it's a smart ass, 
But it's also, as Nick says, it's a commentary. It's a parody. It's 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 actually making a comment about society. And I think it's the type of poster like a really bad middle manager would have in his office. It's kind of like those anti-motivational uh, posters that were popular back in the I don't know early two like, thousands or something. The demotivational posters. Yes, exactly. Yes, I definitely got that sense of this one. One of the ways in which he interjects humor, um, but. What struck me is I read this uh, this story a few weeks ago, and then uh, read it again uh, in preparation for this. Um, so I, I read it again last night, and um, I think one of the things that I was struck on was how timely. You you made the comment about how, you know, it, you know, a post apocalyptic uh, world isn't maybe so different from what we're in today, and I thought. Um, Goodfellow's commentary and critical analysis of authority really timely in this. Scarily timing. Not just authority. It's weird. You know, the authority in this, the the police officers, the mayoral candidates, you know, they're hooded people. You don't know who they are. You don't know who's representing you. It's also a classic case of, you know, the the, uh, disparity between the haves and the have-nots, you know, there's definitely white flight is definitely in effect here. You know, uh, uh, the rich folk are the, the highest middle class you could possibly be before you become a rich folk have all congregated in, you know, suburbia, which, you know, has been that's been going on since what, the 50s. It's this now it's even more, you know, fortified, more policed, more Neil Stevenson's uh, snow crashes. While, you know, Torben uh, Thrush is. You know, he's standing on the street corner where, with the same folks that, you know, you stand on the street corner that you hire to, you know, perform your, your lawn maintenance and everything. And it's, it's, it's sad and it's kind of crushing and it's kind of, you know, a nihilistic approach. It's, in a weird sort of way, it's, it's, I, I think of the, the COVID stuff going on. It's like, it's a half-assed apocalypse. You know, we, we've, we've had decades of where the apocalypse is, you know, Fallout 3, ruined world, we're living with the mutants, and it's hard to get by. Well, this is that, but it's it's not, you know. In this apocalypse, you still have a 9-to-5 job. You still have a boss that probably has a poster on their wall that says if you're not the lead dog. You still have bills to pay. But your problems are even more compounded by there's religious sects running around. There's a whole bunch of weird... You know, t- technology's not working. There's occultists running around. It's just like, you know, if if you're white collar or blue collar or, or lower, you're just even you're even more fucked than normal in this type of world. And I, I think that's kind of one of the things Goodfellas drawing attention to is is just how great that dis- disparity is. Um, uh, I I think. Uh, and not I, and not so different from what. We experience today. It's not. I, I, I think one of the, the title sums it up. So sort of like how Wagoner Sorrow sums up an emotive feeling for that story. Mm-hmm. Um, Goodfellow's title sum uh, conjures up the utilityness of the story. And I actually wrote this down. Uh, I, I think it's, it's a really bleak title for an otherwise dark comedy, but. Regular folks are mostly real polite because they're scared shitless if, of each other. Because nobody's got nothing to lose. 
Strangers die every day, and there still seems to be no shortage of people. And it's it's a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Meat-grinding way to look at life. This life just chews you up and kind of spits you out. And that's, that's a Goodfellow's story kind of in a nutshell here. Nick, you articulated it really well. I'm equating it to uh, meat grinding, um, or I would say a dog-eat-dog uh, type of world that, that uh, is conveyed in this story. So I'm, I actually think you nailed it. I think one of the other kind of interesting things about uh, Strangers Die Every Day is it's ostensibly it's a detective story. And as we've kind of learned over the last couple years doing this podcast and reading other Lovecraft stuff is is Lovecraft stuff lends, its well, lends itself very well to the detective genre. There is a lot of, you know, hard-boiled Lovecraftian fiction out there. Um, Usually some sort of uh, hard-boiled detective is hired to unearth something and it's some sort of, you know, cultish whatever going on. And in a weird sort of way, good fellow, he doesn't commit to those normal detective tropes, uh, especially through his, uh, his Torben character. Uh, usually when we think of some of the classic detectives, you know, they're, they're all presented kind of the same. They're, they're white dudes. They're, they're quote-unquote down on their luck. But if you really think about it, though, despite that they're, you know, apparently living in poverty, they, they still have a, an office, they're still dressed well, they still get the, the hot femme fatale dames walking in with legs that go for days. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're not as down on their luck as they appear to be. While Torben, on the other hand, he's operating at, from a U-Haul parking lot. He's, he's a person of color. He's, um... You know, he, he lives in a, a trailer park that's about to be sucked up in a sinkhole, you know, with someone that may or may not be his, uh, his SO. I mean, they, they have some sort of weird relationship. But, you know, he, he's not a normal detective by any means. But, you know, he's still hired as one. He still has great deduction skills. He still gets beat up like a detective should be beat up. Um, <laughs> uh, in the weird sort of way, the only real clue he unearths is he goes into the suburbia and finds the... Uh, the house lettering has been painted over, which leads into a cult, and, you know, that that's some, that's some, uh, I'm gonna say some great, you know, detective work there to be able to make those connections, but, but he does, um, but on the other hand, he doesn't do it with the, the 1940s style, or even in a more neo-noir style, you know, he's not Decker from Blade Runner, he's not Joseph Gordon-Levitt from Brick, he's, he's basically, he's borderline hobo, but he's still good at what he does. This is so still a detective. with a shotgun instead? Oh, he's almost... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's... Again, it's, it's a detective story, but not as glamorous as a normal detective story would be. It's a different type of detective story. And it's a different type of Lovecraftian detective story, I would say, as well. I, I don't think this would be quite the story that would lend itself well to a Call of Cthulhu RPG game... But I think it becomes kind of close. I like your idea about the uh, detective aspect to it. I actually didn't think about that. Um, I thought more of a... I'm, I'm almost going to say like a supernatural... Like, you know, the series. Um, dealing with some sort of issue for the week. And to me, I saw uh, Thrush as more of a... 
a special investigator who actually deals with cults. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little different, but I mean, I, I see where it's kind of detective-like. Um, but he does, he comes, he comes to each issue with, with a different arsenal. And there is kind of like a, a need to kind of like jump the shark slightly on how he's able to, you know, determine the next steps in the mystery that he can solve. Um, so for that, that's uh, rather, not, that was an interesting thing. I really liked the voice, the fact that we have a Native American uh, whose perspective we're getting. Um, we don't know um, Ursula's um, background um, other than the fact that she is marked to bear the offspring of an outer god. So so let's let's talk about that for a second because yeah. that's a good way to, to compare and contrast this to Wagoner's thing. The, the disposable quality of motherhood, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. In Wagoner's story... You know, this is a mom that's being, you know, the, the, the primo definition of a mom. You know, this mom is going to protect her kid no matter what. On the other hand, in Goodfellow's story, Ursula, she, for all purposes, she's a mom. She's, she's cranking out things. <laughs> that, that's, that's the best she we is. She's cranking out something. You know, she hires herself out to have homonucleus monkey babies or something. And, you know, and, you know, the, in a weird sort of if you think about it, her offspring kind of skips a step that Wagoner's does it, you know, if you think about it, you know, the end result of uh, Danny in that story becomes some sort of monster, uh, but, you know, it has to be a, a kid first, you know, Goodfellow dispenses that, he just goes straight to, he just gave birth to a monster, but it's so nonchalant about it, you know, Ursula doesn't care about these kids, these monster, monkey, homonuclei, baby things, they get stepped on, they get squished, they get, you know, whatevered with, and it's, it's a really different attitude on motherhood, if you think about it. Well, and I would say, too, Thrush, you know, articulates, because he has to go get the car, and when he goes to get the car, Ursula is with, um, for all intents and purposes, a John. A John who has paid Ursula to have sex, so that way she will have one of these children that then this, this John can turn around and either make a slave or be an organ transplant or, you know, lift a curse or something like that. And so it's actually very interesting because Thrush protects her. Thrush you know, goes in and talks about how that, you know, she is marked and she is, you know, the consort of a deity. And, and, and I mean, it just takes it to a whole nother level. But, um, but, but you know, that sort of dialogue, you know, if mm-hmm. you put that in antiquity, that would be a divine thing. This is yes. a woman that's going to give birth to a god. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be someone that would have slaves and count you know courtesans and a temple and everything and here she's she's in a hotel room with a john yeah and she's basically engaged in well the oldest profession of womanhood uh you know being a prostitute trying to make money um you know to make ends meet and to uh pay her rent and I guess uh, another kind of connection with the little like monsters that she spits out. I mean, for all purposes, they're kids, and in a weird sort of way, they kind of behave like kids. You know, uh, when Thrush goes to the automobile, they're squirming about, getting into things, causing him. Uh, you know, 
Oh, in a weird... the radio station yeah. on him and things like that. You, you, yeah. In any other story, you'd almost expect Thrush to turn around and say, One more time, kids, and I'm turning this car back. <laughs> in, another, in a weird sort of way, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the, the importance of automobiles in both of these stories, you know, the automobile breaks down in Wagoner's story, and it's the catalyst for everything like this. But on the other hand, in this story, Thrush can't, almost can't operate without the automobile. He has to have this car and of course i think it's more or less conveyed that this is a pos type of car it doesn't work as well but it still gets them by um the other thing i want to kind of make a weird connection with between this and wagoner's story is is uh, vomiting <laughs> vomiting is kind of important in both stories in a weird sort of way um after the cars all break down, most of the characters in Wagoner's story, they barf up like this this oily tar thing that's got critters and stuff rolling around in it. And it's kind of gross. Um, but in, in Goodfellow's story, the main character, and this is the weird thing, Goodfellow does not quite lay out the abilities that Torben has. He hints at him, but he doesn't really explain him. What we know is, one, Torben can get his ass kicked, and he's fine with it. Well, not fine with it, but, you know, when he goes into the suburbia, he gets tasered, he gets pepper sprayed, he gets punched, he gets batoned, you know. Uh, of course, we could see that in the news any day now, uh, for all those protesters out there. Uh, but, you know, he's also living it. But he's he's not as phased by it. You know, he walks away through it basically kind of unharmed. So that tells me that, you know, he's got some sort of super strength, supernatural, that basically has gives him a super high endurance. Um, uh, when he gets crucified, he's got, he's got nails going through all parts of his body. He gets clubbed. He gets stoned. His bones all break. He's, he, he's basically described as like a fleshy sack just hanging there. But he's still alive. And, and, uh, and Goodfellow makes a point that says he's not even bleeding. You know, they were looking for blood to come at him. He's not even bleeding. And so how, how is our intrepid detective going to get out of this jam when you're nailed up onto a cross? Well, you vomit yourself. He vomits something out, and when another guy comes across, you know, comes walking in, he, uh, I don't know, like Evil Dead 2, and the eyeball pops into that lady's mouth and she swallows it. He basically schlumps down into some guy's belly and takes over that person and basically bursts out a little bit later. I don't know what you would call this ability. It is definitely an ability, but... Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is both stories have these sequences of vomiting. Of they're vomiting some sort of grotesquerie, and, and it's not like food or anything, but they're living critters, you know. In Wagoners, it's some sort of critters. We don't know what they are. In Goodfellow's story, he's vomiting himself, you know, in some form, but, you know, it's just kind of an interesting, huh, what an interesting thing to pick up on. And I like, don't know how you could follow that statement up with. All I could say is it's very interesting that we ended up doing these two stories that have vomit involved. <laughs> the other, oh, one more thing about the detective thing. You know, uh, underscoring about him being on a down and his luck to detective, most detectives have bullets for their guns. Torben doesn't even have bullets for his guns. For all purposes, he's... He's, he's, he's like the best, worst detective. You know, he just doesn't have the, the trappings of a detective, but he makes it work. Um, the other thing, I, a couple more points I want to bring up. One of them is, is I've recently been getting into kind of 
uh, researching a bit of Rene Girard in Lovecraft to see what a Rene Girardian uh, reading of Lovecraft would bring apart. And there was one passage in Goodfellow's story that really struck me. It was on page 286. Uh, you know, he's staking out the, the cultist's church and, you know, they, they've abducted the, this girl and, you know, what are they going to do with her? And he says, quote, They never understand that you don't trade blood for making something better. You have to shed it from keeping things from getting worse, end quote. The idea being, this is a very Girardian concept of, you have to have a sacrifice. You have to kind of commit a violent act on a specialized person that you, you project all your, of your magnetic desires on. And when you sacrifice that person, that staves off the violence in the community. And in weird sort of way, it's a very Girardian statement that you have to shed blood to you know, stop it from getting worse. And it sounds like this is a world that's trying to operate that way. Well, and I think the church cult is operating that way as well. Well, he, he's saying that they're not operating that way. That's his observation oh, oh, okay. is they don't understand it, that that's, that's what you should be doing. Ah, gotcha. Okay. I, I think one other kind of point, you know, we're talking about kind of the politicalness of this short story. And may I say, I mean, this was written, you know, at least three plus years ago, but how timely it is now with not only we have COVID going on, but, you know, the the protests and Black Lives Matter and all that stuff going on right now. But uh, the idea of the, the essentials, um, you know, for the last couple of months, we've been operating under, you know, our Taco Bell employees are essentials, but we don't treat them that way. Um, it's also very fight club type uh, reference as well. What I mean by that is, is when Torben goes into the suburbia to, you know, do some, you know, clue digging around before he gets kind of ambushed by the Rinta cops there, you know, he makes an observation that he can slip in and out of there as long as it looks like he's working. You know, if you are a blue collar or less person, you know, but as long as it looks like you're working, you're working on the bushes, you're paving the road, you're, uh, you know, fumigating or whatever, you, you, you slip in. You, you really are ignored by everyone else. And it makes me think of, you know, the sequence in Fight Club where, you know, we are your, you know, your servers, your food makers and all that other stuff. And it just, it just seems something that kind of makes me ring what's going on these past couple months as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think one last kind of point to make, because we're kind of wrapping up here, is if we're comparing it to uh, Wagoner and Lovecraft, is we we talk about Wagoner kind of made up his own monsters. Goodfellow, on the other hand, embraces all the Lovecraft monsters. They all get a cameo in here. You know, the the Plateau of Lang is mentioned, Nefren Ka is mentioned, the Esoteric Order of Dagon's mentioned, uh, the Innsmouth monsters. They're not overtly mentioned, but they're described. You know, there's the fishy monster that's in the the uh, the cultist hideout. You know, Cthulhu and Rylan, all that stuff, and. You know, he peppers all that stuff in here, but he peppers them so, I don't want to say frequently, but they're so saturated in one section that it's just kind of, all right, here's all the monsters, I've mentioned them, I got it over with. But it, it doesn't feel like he's just paying lip service to it either. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there. Oh man, I wrote a Lovecraft story, and Cthulhu just, you know, came out of the earth and killed everyone, and it sounds like every other story out there. And and Goodfellow doesn't do that. He has the cameos, but he doesn't dwell on the cameos. This is still a Torben story and what he's going through. Yeah, I really got that sense that while he was, you know, interjecting... Um, 
many of the Lovecraft uh, gods and iconography that you would usually get in the stories. Uh, like you, Nick, I didn't feel like it was lip service and it felt like it gave it flavor that, hey, we still have all this going on out there, but our story is really here. It's it, The nucleus is what's going on with uh, Corbin and um, what he is trying to resolve. Well, if you, if you think, again, it's sort of like how Wagoner's is a slice of life story. This, in a weird sort of way, is also a different type of slice of life story. The world is definitely in a post-apocalypse. There is a lot of messed up stuff happening. But on the other frame, just like in real life, it all seems removed from us. You know, wars in the Middle East, our bombings over here, our, you know, whatever. Until it's in our real backyard, it seems so kind of far away. And... That's, there's you know there's a whole couple pages in this story that kind of describes how you know yeah there's a giant sinkhole in his backyard and yeah there's there's a lot of weird stuff going on but at the same time all like the big 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 stuff is still it's far away mm-hmm. it's there it's it, it's impacting my life but it's not impacting my life it's not necessarily in my backyard even though it kind of is you know it's just that kind of well we as Americans view kind of the worst of the world is well that's your problem over there. Well, I think on that note, um, we are definitely going to be at the hour mark or maybe just a few minutes over. Um, So we're going to go ahead and and close that chapter of uh, Cody Goodfellow and uh, move into what's coming up next. So for upcoming events, we will be on Voice of Olympus, Scholars at the Edge of Time, next Thursday, June 25th at 6 p.m., Our guest will be Kevin Wetmore, Jr. He is a writer, actor, professor, comedian, and fight choreographer. He is the editor of several collections, including Uncovering Stranger Things, Essays on Aiding Nostalgia, Cynicism, and Innocence in the Series. Inspired by Lovecraft's mythos, Kevin has written several short stories that have been published in Kill Those Damn Cats and Urban Temples of Cthulhu. Uh, Kevin's also been a contributor to many of Michelle's and my projects as well. He's contributed to Michelle's Horror and Space book and my uh, uh, The New Peplum and to also uh, horror literature from Gothic to Postmodern. In next month's episode of HP Lovecast, we'll be exploring the writings of Kevin Wetmore. We'll be selecting two or three of his short stories to discuss on episode 29. Uh, we will be posting that Sunday, July 5th. We will post those exact stories on Facebook shortly. And if you want to check us out on social media, you can find us as HP Lovecast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as at our website. Yeah, you guessed it, hplovecast.com. And of course, you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you would like to support us, be sure to check out our books. Uh, between Michelle and I, we've uh, Michelle's got a, a James Bond book, the Horror in Space book. Uh, I have the New Peplum book, and we both have the Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern book. So we would appreciate uh, if y'all wanted to support us in any way to check out our work. Thanks for listening, and keep safe. Thank you all very, very much.